Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. We like to think about it as kind of a bathtub overflowing with water. The tap is running and we're trying to kind of take the water out with a spoon. It's never going to work. What we have to do is turn the tap off. So when we look at these downstream solutions that are at the very end, the plastic has already been produced. Cleaning up that trash is not the solution. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Greetings from the farm. It's so fun to record in person whenever we get a chance. Mom, I love this little attic office space you've created. It's so fun to record here in person. There's these great windows looking into the backyard and it's sunny summer day. I think it's just a really great day to talk about stuff. Yeah, I had actually had an experience today about stuff that's really related to today's episode. So I had an errand around today at the DMV. I went there. And that's in a part of town that's, of course, surrounded by all the things, all the shopping and the strip malls and so forth. And I don't get out very much. And so when I finished my little errand there, which didn't take very long, thankfully, I felt like I had some extra time. And the DMV is really close to three places that might typically really pull me in. And one of them being Costco, the other one being Home Depot, and the other one being Home Goods. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I left there thinking, oh, I have some time and I'm out. And what do I need? What do I need? What what can I run and do yeah, while I'm out? While I'm out and save myself time later. So I'm driving along and sort of, you know, relishing the idea of going into Costco and getting some fun stuff or maybe go through Home Goods and see what they have new. And then I thought, I caught myself. I thought, wait a minute. What have I been trying to do at home for the last several days? Get rid of stuff. Is, <laughs> is get rid of stuff. And everywhere I look, there are things that need to be put away or sorted or put into the garage sale box. And I literally caught myself thinking, am I actually going to go in somewhere and purchase some things and bring bags of things into my house so that later down the road in a few weeks or months or so, I'm going to be looking at it and saying, what do I do with this? And so I felt very empowered by not going anywhere else and just driving home. And all the way home, I was thinking about ballsy. <laughs> <laughs> all the way home, I was thinking about the funny little dialogue I had had with myself about this was an opportunity for me to go buy something. And I literally couldn't think of anything I needed or wanted. It was just going to be something to go do while I was out. The me of five years ago, possibly 10, I don't know, a me from the past would have been all over that. I know because I, I guess I, I actually catch myself more often than I actually do this now. I'm proud to say, but I know what you do because it's what I would do is you actually do go in. You're like, oh, well, you go in and you let Costco tell you what you need. <laughs> I'm just like, really? dangerous. Cam and I do that a lot too. And actually Cam's really good at catching it. You know, we'll be near somewhere inconvenient or I'll have to run to one store and it's right next to Ace Hardware or something. And it's like, okay, what do we need? And then we both, and he's like, if we have to sit here thinking of it, we probably don't need it that bad. It's always a good reminder. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great story of stuff. 
Yeah, it's a story <laughs> of stuff. And today we're going to talk about the story of stuff. Yeah, but first I just want to remind everyone that we do have this a voicemail, voice message box where we would love to hear from you. And we have some people calling in. And I was just going to say, because this just happened, I had a message that I missed. So you'll be hearing that next week or the week after we are doing our wedding follow-up bonus episode. So keep an eye out for that. And we're going to play this voicemail then. So if you called in a couple months ago in response to one of our first wedding episodes, don't worry, we're playing your voicemail a couple <laughs> weeks. It'll tie in with the wedding follow-up episode really well. But for everyone who hasn't called in yet, the number is 443-459-1950. And I think the prompt should be your story of stuff. If you have a story of stuff, we'd love to hear your stories of stuff. And you might be wondering why we keep saying story of stuff. And we're going to tell you in just a second. But first, I'm going to remind you that the voicemail is 443-459-1950. And it's linked in the show notes of this episode. And we really love hearing from you guys. So please call in and tell us your story of stuff. And in the meantime, we have a story of stuff for you today. Yes. Don't be shy about the calling in. Yeah. All right. So. Our conversation today is with Smriti Aravind, who is the development manager at the Story of Stuff Project. So what is the Story of Stuff? It's an activist community that started with the short documentary released in 2007 titled The Story of Stuff, which is a 20-minute, fast-paced, fact-filled look at the underside of our production and consumption patterns. This short film exposes the connections between a huge number of environmental and social issues and calls us together to create a more sustainable and just world. In the decade plus since they released that first film, their award-winning animated movies have garnered more than 50 million online views around the world and have encouraged viewers to support hundreds of environmental projects and campaigns with their time, money, and energy. The Story of Stuff Project has grown into a movement working to shift the way we make, use, and throw away stuff. We definitely have a problem with stuff. We have too much of it, and too much of it is toxic, and we don't share it very well. But that's not the way that things have to be. Today, their San Francisco Bay area-based team inspires and encourages the civic engagement of the more than 1 million members of their global community. They invite everyone to be inspired by and share their movies, participate in their study programs, and take part in campaigns on the environmental and social issues that they care about. We're really happy to be able to share this conversation with Smriti, who brings to the organization a decade of nonprofit experience, both out in the field and behind a screen, with an emphasis on digital storytelling and network building to drive systemic change. So here is Smriti Aravind to inform and inspire us with the story of stuff. So my name is Smriti. I am the development manager at the Story of Stouts project. I'm basically in charge of stewarding resources, making sure that we have the funds, making sure that our our programs are equipped with the resources that they need to succeed. Basically, I've been working in nonprofits my entire career. My first job out of college was at Teach for India, which was at the time just starting. I think it was like in its second year, so it was very new. And then from there, I was mostly in communications, graphic design and video production. So kind of that aspect of nonprofit work which I do here as well, but definitely the resources part is a big deal of making sure any nonprofit is successful. Awesome. So what is Story of Stuff and what do you do? Yeah. So the Story of Stuff is kind of a unique nonprofit. It was founded basically because of the unexpected viral success of the 2007, so quite a while, we just celebrated the 15th anniversary of the original film, The Story of Stuff, which was an online documentary featuring Annie Leonard, who is the founder of the organization and also currently the outgoing co-executive director of Greenpeace. And she, at the time, made this film that really struck a chord about our consumption-crazed culture you know, our relationship with stuff, the linear economy. And it was also kind of the early YouTube had just started. This film was released exclusively on YouTube. 
So it was kind of one of the very first cause-related viral films. The organization was started after the fact because people wanted more, you know, they wanted more media from us and they wanted more opportunities to get involved in the kind of the system that Annie describes and the intervention points that she identifies. So since then, we've definitely expanded beyond just producing media, although that is kind of the backbone and what we're mostly known for. We've definitely expanded into having a really robust kind of campaigns team, which capitalizes on the interest and the engagement that our media generates and funnels it into policy change. And then the third branch of what we do is, I guess we call it power building or network weaving. It's basically bringing together diverse partners. Right now, for the past couple of years, that work is anchored by our grassroots grants program, which is a small grants program where we identify and award um, small grants to frontline environmental groups across America working mostly at the intersection of plastics. But I mean, there's, you know, plastics touch on like a wide range of kind of interconnected issues as well, including farming and growing food locally as well. Thank you so much for that overview. So in sort of to sum that up, is it correct in saying that the story of stuff is a media platform that is also fundraises and highlights issues and funnels, as you said, funnels resources into various efforts and just sort of raises awareness and then also powers real resources behind the issues. Is that kind of what it is? Yeah, I I think you could say that. We're a bit of an odd duck. We don't kind of like fit neatly into just content creation or just advocacy. It's kind of all of it. Our campaign's work has been quite significant in recent years. Our film, The Story of Microplastics, or was it Microbeads, actually played quite a significant role. The film and the accompanying sort of engagement campaign and the support that we kind of raised around the issue led to the first serious ban of, of microbeads and personal care products under the Obama administration. I mean, I don't doubt it. It's so, I mean, I imagine many people listening to this podcast have seen it, if not most of them. And if you haven't, we will definitely we'll link it in our show notes. Yeah, I think most people that I talked to about it have seen that video, which is in this day and age... Not something you run across a lot. Everybody having seen the same YouTube video. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I think that kind of speaks to the fact that we we were kind of one of the first on the platform, uh, which was always helpful before it got like, now it's like, oh my God, what's going on here? Yeah. Was Annie Leonard, when she started, was she a filmmaker or what was her, what was her kind of background coming into starting it? Yeah, you know, I think, so she was, I mean, she was definitely an activist. She was associated with Greenpeace and Gaia for a long time. She was not a filmmaker. I think making this video was, I don't know, I think it was mostly like her kind of, she was just such a like articulate person and able to kind of take all the facets of the linear economy. And if, I mean, if you look at the original film, it covers a lot of things. And Annie kind of takes you through it in a fast paced, but very clear way. So, you know, I I don't know like what inspired her to first make that film. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, she's definitely, she's a strong force behind it. She's still on our board of directors. We recently spoke to her and she's, her time at Greenpeace has really been kind of transformational and bringing BIPOC voices and leaders into kind of decision-making roles at the organization. She's done her bit. She seemed kind of happy to be stepping down, but, you know, she's put in her time. She's put in her time at small organizations and she's put in her time at the very highest level of the biggest kind of green organization out there, so. Well, I'm fascinated by that early film. And what I think is one of the most remarkable things about it is that it's able to present this huge topic in so many aspects of the problem in a way that it 
it's not doom and gloom. It's not like one of those documentaries with the dark music going in the background and and showing all these horrible pictures. And it's a cartoon. And those of you out there that haven't seen it, you must <laughs> just Google the story of stuff and watch the original one. It's what, from 2006 or seven, did you say? 2007. 2007. Yeah. It's like a little cartoon with stick figures and it, it just explains everything. So as you say, articulately, and I imagine, I don't know if she did the screenplay or was that her concept in the beginning that the, the, the sort of cartoon or do you haven't, do you know? I mean, you know how, how that came about? We work yeah. with a animation studio, free range studios, and they're behind a lot of the story of films. They also animated our feature length documentary, The Story of Plastic, which also won an Emmy last year. Or I think it was 2021. I'm sorry that it won an Emmy. I know all the 20s are running together at this point. I know. <laughs> They're running together. That's true. They, they've been longtime collaborators, um, but it was it was a studio. Well, that sort of became your signature style, sort of the, 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 the animation and the very factual and articulate and direct, just giving you this is the way it is. And it's just very impactful and... It synthesizes a whole bunch of information in a way that people can digest, I think. And which is, would seem to me like a big reason why it's been so successful. I think one of our staff members put it this way. It's systems thinking for the general public. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so let's go back to you. So your work in development and nonprofits in this area, what sort of brought you to this field? What's your history with environmentalism and environmental activism? I'm fairly new to, I guess you could say, the, the plastics movement. I've learned in the past three years I've been here, there's definitely a plastics movement. There's a handful of organizations very much involved with pushing this work forward. And for me, I'm coming from, I guess, more of uh, my, my last job was grassroots organizing at the regional level in Oakland, California, which, you know, I loved doing that. But I think I, I kind of always felt kind of the pull to to join an environmental organization and bring kind of like whatever I could into that space. I don't know if I can really explain it. This is one of those things that are like, yeah, I think for our generation and especially even the younger generation, Gen Z, it's just it's everywhere. Like it's it's not a topic. It's like the background to everything. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah. The plastic discussion, you mean? I, I guess just changing the way that we live. I mean, just environment. It's a huge umbrella term, obviously, but it covers all these things in terms of like, you know, our wasteful culture. And, you know, plastics is a good kind of focal point because it of its close relationship to, to oil and gas. You know, the fact that plastic is a byproduct of, of oil and gas. It, it's like the signature element, I would say, of the disposable society. And that just encompasses so much. But that's such an interesting observation that you just described, that you described it as the background to everything. It's just kind of like something we're all just sort of swimming in this whole discussion and this whole struggle. And we certainly feel that way because we talk about it all the time on here. Do you feel like it's just for your average millennial or Gen Z, do you feel like it's the same that they, you are steeped in it in a way, or do you think they have to be tapped in more? And maybe this has evolved over the last 10 years, certainly I would think since Story of Stuff started. So what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Story of Stuff, the way that we think about it is that plastic is already established in everyone's mind as an apex environmental problem. And that's, you know, in large part, thanks to the work, like you mentioned, the past 10 years that Story of Stuff has done, that our allies have done, that others in the environmental space have done in bringing awareness to the problem. So I think in terms of the way that we approach it, we kind of saw, especially the story of plastic, the documentary film, as kind of the final, okay, look, this is the problem, which, you know, laid it out across the world, the kind of urgency and scope of the problem. And for us looking forward, you know, since the release of that film, our work since then and looking ahead is now more about solutions. We do think everyone gets it, that it's a problem. And I think our efforts now are about 
promoting real solutions versus false solutions and talking about it in a way that is bigger than individual actions and really focusing on systemic change, change at the state level, the national level, change at the world level. There's you know, the Global Plastics Treaty being negotiated this year, which we are involved in. The Breakthrough from Plastic Movement sends delegates there. We currently have our video producers is in Vietnam for the first round of negotiations. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a binding treaty, which, you know, we have hope that binding treaties are actually more effective than non-binding treaties, at least. So, yeah, you know, things are making slow but steady progress. I love that you mentioned the shift from individual responsibility to systemic change. I think that's something that even in the past, we've been doing this podcast now for three years. I think even since the beginning of us doing this podcast, that has become a more resounding echo. We kind of started Lady Farmer and our own work here as, you know, it's all of our individual efforts can add up. And there's some truth to that, but I think there's been such more Recently, there's been so much more of a push to all of us getting on the same page that it is bigger than all of our (laughs) individual actions, and it's completely systemic. That's interesting that you say that. And also, can you tell us about some of these solutions and some of the real solutions versus false solutions to the plastic problem? Yeah. So when we when we talk about false solutions, I think we kind of all know what they are because they tend to gain a lot of traction on like social media, for example. Basically, like I'm talking about like ocean cleanups, right? Like someone who invented a device to clean up the Pacific, South Pacific garbage patch, for example, just any kind of like cleanup efforts in general. You know, we consider these false solutions because mainly because they do nothing to stop the production of plastic. We like to think about it as kind of a bathtub overflowing with water. The tap is running and we're trying to kind of take the water out with a spoon. And, you know, it's never going to work. What we have to do is turn the tap off. So when we look at kind of like these downstream solutions that are at the very end, the plastic has already been produced. You know, it's, it's been used. It's been trashed somewhere. Cleaning up that trash is not the solution. Um, Unfortunately, I think this is kind of, nobody wants to hear this, but most of the plastic in the ocean is going to stay there. Like there's no way we're going to clean up all of that. It's breaking down into microplastics, you know, at this ridiculous rate. You know, our hope doesn't lie in kind of like collecting all of that and taking it out of the ocean. It, It lies in stopping production or reducing it significantly. And then some other false solutions, which um, we're actually focusing a lot on this year, are again kind of uh, geared towards the end of plastics life cycle. And these are like what we do with incineration, for example, which is often branded as waste to energy. Annie Leonard recently called it a waste of energy, which we all thought was clever because it's, it's basically burning trash, which creates a whole host of other problems. We're focusing on this quite heavily this year. We have a documentary short coming out about one of the last remaining incinerators in California, which was built in the Central Valley farm working region in Modesto. This area was chosen because of, you know, the inhabitants who live there, who, you know, are Spanish speaking, farm working, and were considered at the time as unlikely to resist or organize to stop building this incinerator in their backyard because it is polluting the air and the water and the land. It's incredibly toxic. This is a part of California that has the worst air quality in the country, and it's affecting everyone who lives there and their children. This is obviously a false solution. You know, we can't burn our plastic and call it waste to energy and pat ourselves on the back. I have one I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, sure. When you see the marketing of of clothing that's made out of, say, recycled plastic bottles or so forth. That's that's the other one. That That's a great observation. Yeah, that's that's a false solution as well. And it doesn't matter how many leggings you make out of recycled plastic bottles. Also, the danger of it, and we've talked about this before, 
is that it gives people a false sense of justification for buying things. If they think it's a material that can be recycled, then they feel oh, okay about buying it. Now, that goes back to the thing is that like we can't do enough as individuals that the whole thing needs to be stopped at the at the tap like your film demonstrates. So I wanted to circle back a little bit. You started talking about some of the bigger policy changes that are taking place. You mentioned a couple of things. And these are things that I don't hear about very much. I mean, I think someone would have to be pretty kind of close to the field to be have their finger on the pulse of all these things that are really happening. And so can you tell us things that are happening at the tap that that we might not have heard about? You mentioned a couple of it, but I just wonder if you can talk about that a little more. Things that you know are really happening where it, where it really counts. Yeah. So two of the kind of major areas of campaign work that we're focusing on for a couple of years now, because, you know, policy change is like a years long battle. <laughs> it never ends in one year is deposit return systems or the bottle bill, which, you know, some states have, some states don't have. So it's basically when you see that there's like a 10 cent or 5 cent deposit return on a beverage container. So you take it to the recycling and you actually get that money back. And this is if if you live in a state where this happens, you might kind of have taken it for granted. I know I did the whole time I was in California, but this is actually one of the most effective ways to drive recycling and get these beverage containers out of the waste stream, especially since beverage containers are among the few types of plastics that can be recycled at the right facilities. Obviously, the vast majority of plastic can't be recycled, you know. With beverage containers, we have, we like to call it a low-hanging fruit because it's it's a simple thing that's in California alone can take 13 billion containers out of the waste stream, the environment, out of landfills. So one of our big efforts last year was to sort of modernize California's system, which was landmark legislation a couple decades ago, but has been lagging every year since. Basically, the big picture was that CalRecycle was sitting on about half a billion dollars in unclaimed deposits. So this is kind of a de facto tax that the consumer is paying, right? Like you buy a bottle of Coke, for example, you pay 10 cents extra which you're supposed to get back when you return the beverage. But because of a lack of convenient sites to return them, you know, maybe even a lack of awareness, a lack of knowledge, and also the infrastructure, which had been kind of deteriorating, as well as large food deserts in, in parts of California where people just didn't have, you know, they had to drive a long way to find a recycling center or a drop-off location. Because of all these reasons, the, the drop-off rate had been declining significantly. Half a billion dollars that CalRecycle was sitting on. So we were really able to win, I would call it, some early steps towards reform there and getting these agencies to, to put that money towards creating a better infrastructure for, for citizens who want to take their containers back for recycling and make it easier for them. Oh, that's amazing that there are that many existing containers out there that would bring in that kind of revenue. Is there also a way for incenting producers, manufacturers, beverage manufacturers to use glass instead of plastic? Does it extend there or have we not gotten there yet? So that's, I mean, that's that's a huge kind of whale to take on. These manufacturers are consistently the top polluters every year. We do along with the Break Free from Plastic movement, does a brand audit every year where they kind of coordinate these beach cleanups across the world and identify the top polluters. It's always the same. It's, you know, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Nestle. So getting these massive multinational corporations to sort of play ball is not something we've shied away from ever, but it's a long fight for sure. Well, these are people. I mean, they can see the problem. I mean, why is there such resistance? I realize because they're they, they're driving this gigantic ship and it's a lot to turn it around. But is it even on the table? Is there even any discussion about it or is it just not not dealt with? I think if it weren't for people demanding change, it, I don't think they would ever make a change. I think one of the kind of inroads we're making apart from bottle bills are refillable system. So refillables are kind of the next frontier that the Break Free from Plastic movement is, is working on. 
our media initiative for the next couple of years is it's called the Reuse Revolution. The story of stuff is sort of focused on establishing refillable quotas, getting states to mandate refillables quotas. Again, this is like something that we are working towards and it's, it's ambitious for sure, but it's a step towards a circular economy the, way, the same way that bottle bills are. This is something that we have to have buy-in from corporations to achieve. If Coke is putting out, say, 5 million beverage containers, who is responsible for getting those back into the system in a circular way? You know, is it up to the consumer? I think up until now, they've put it on the consumer. And that's kind of what we're trying to change is getting the extended producer responsibility laws in place. They're the ones setting up the infrastructure for refillables. What do you make of the progress, at least what I see as a consumer and someone who sort of dabbles in this space of keeping up with it? I'm always seeing cool articles about, oh, they're doing this in Scandinavia. They do this in Europe. They have these in this grocery store where these, you know, even these big brands like Tide, like all reusable aluminum recyclable containers and things like that. So it's happening and there are solutions. What I'm seeing is a lot of times it's in smaller countries, usually in Europe. Is that just because those countries are smaller and more progressive? Or what do you think when you see stuff like that? Because I think, oh, it's just like they can do it because they're more nimble or something. But why is that so impossible? If, if there are literally countries doing this stuff, why can't we do it? So I think we have to kind of look at it, I guess, from a global perspective. I think Europe kind of maintains this good reputation for, for recycling, while at the same time sending a lot of their waste to developing countries, to Southeast Asia, basically just getting the trash away, you know, to somebody else's neighborhood. That's also, that's a false solution, obviously, because it didn't go anywhere. It's just <laughs> went into somebody else's yard. So there's an element here of making the global South pay for consumption that it didn't create. I guess that's how I, I would put it. And thereby reducing the burden on kind of a country which maybe has a smaller population to begin with, has found a way to get rid of a bunch of its waste. And then with whatever is left, okay, yeah, and we've got, you know, a system. But that is not to sort of like in any way downplay the progress that they have made. You know, definitely there are European countries that are way ahead of the U.S. in terms of having policy in place in terms of having drop-off locations in place. I know in Germany you have to, they're very strict about recycling, right? You go and like separate all your recycling and put it into the corresponding kind of, you know, bottles here, paper here. We don't have any kind of nationwide mandates or policies to do that. You know, I leave a lot up to states and we see a huge discrepancy between from states that are trying really hard and, and others that don't even have a plastic bag ban in place yet. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, 
natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. What are some really creative and effective things you see happening in other countries that are really working? And the recycling system in Germany is very strict, but that's still a lot of pressure on the consumer. You know, we've all seen the parks with the recycling bin that's just full of trash. You know, that's it's still it's still like the solution is happening at the end of the line. So do you know of any really really innovative and progressive things that are going on in other countries that we could possibly look to or emulate or I mean maybe those you don't you don't know any. I don't know. So our series that we launched last year, Solving Plastic, does take a look at a few other countries. They're very short kind of like web episodes and a lot of them are US based, but we have been looking at solutions in, in Latin America, mostly around refill, mostly around things like services that provide bulk grains, bulk rice, bulk food products without any plastic packaging by basically making it easy for, for folks to sort of fill it up into their own reusable containers. It's amazing that it's such a simple thing works, but plastic packaging is a huge percentage of, of the waste that, first of all, is not recyclable. And second of all, just the volume of it is massive. So reducing plastic packaging, especially around kind of food related things, you know, like go to the grocery store and you see that fruits are wrapped in plastic for no reason, for example. Clamshells, but clamshells. And clamshells are not recyclable. Right. And so many times you run into laws, you know, health laws, food safety laws that actually prevent the refillables. Yeah. They require you to use the I guess makes sense from a food safety, but that's really hard. Like how to reconcile those two things? Well, you know, we've been doing it without plastic for a very long time. And one of the things that the sort of global reuse revolution looks at is sort of indigenous methods of food packaging and places in, in Asia and Africa, where it has been the norm for a long time to use biodegradable packaging, banana leaves, jute. And these sort of indigenous practices that are being supplanted by, by flooding these developing markets with cheap plastic, sachets, especially like these single-use sachets that appear trying to bring into parts of the world that, that don't have the capability to process the trash, definitely don't. I mean, it's not recyclable in the first place, so... What do you mean by sachet? So sachets are these like little single-use packets of um, mostly personal care products, shampoo, conditioner, deodorant. And this has kind of been a big push for the industry, especially as kind of we're seeing in the West, especially reliance on gas decrease, you know, as people kind of getting more into, into solar, into electric cars. I mean, we call it the plan B of the oil and gas industry is to ramp up the use of single-use plastics. Like sample sizes of stuff? Like hotel things? Yeah, 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 yeah. And targeting especially emerging markets as a way to say that, you know, it's more affordable if it's in this tiny, small size. But creating a, a huge trash burden on these parts of the world. Yeah, I also think there's also this message that it's more sanitary or it's, it's safer if all these things are are packaged individually and you know we're so especially since covid you know so conscious of, of passing germs and things and that makes it even harder to impress upon people you know the enormity of the problem because the whole thing about you know sanitation feels much more immediate, I think, than, oh, yeah, there's all this plastic in the Pacific, but we can't worry about that today, you know, that kind of thing. So you use the term global reuse revolution. Where did you get that phrase? Yeah, so the, that's kind of a storytelling and campaign initiative that we're a part of and all the sort of partner groups of Break Free from Plastic is a part of. So, yeah, that's kind of one of the big things, I guess, that, that we're working on this year and years to come. Could we Google it and would it have a website? Is it is it an organized thing or is it just a, a phrase? Is that one of, you know? It's it's an organized thing, definitely. So the Break Free from Plastic 
movement is a network of, of groups around the world. Story of Stuff was a founding member of the movement. It's, it's a pretty organized kind of narrative change media storytelling. It's not an organization since it's a network of all these groups. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely organized. That makes me want to want to look into these things because, you know, makes me want to know what, what more is going on, you know, at the higher levels. I think we get caught in the weeds a lot ourselves, which kind of brings me to the next question. Um, we know that these changes have got to take place on a higher level to really have any real impact. So whether or not I use a Ziploc bag every now and then for whatever reason, it's not going to change the world. I don't want to do it and I don't do it, but it just kind of makes me feel like I'm doing my part, but am I really helping? So if these changes need to take place on a higher level, what do we do as individuals that really are policy people to finally get it or these big beverage companies to, you know, light bulb to finally go off? Like, yeah, we need to really change this. I mean, what what do we do? Yeah, I mean, it's well, we can't wait on anybody. I think we've seen time and time again that it doesn't matter to executives of massive corporations. They're going to take the path of the highest profit. It is definitely resistance. It is people like us who are who need to sort of make the effort to hold government officials responsible and to hold corporations responsible. But you're right, like the individual consumer making one choice instead of the other is great. They shouldn't stop doing that. It's a great place to start, but a terrible place to stop because there's a ladder of engagement and change making beyond that, which includes, you know, flexing your citizen muscles. It's another thing that we like to say. It's started stuff. Flex your citizen muscles and get involved in any way that you can because it's policies that's going to make the difference. You know, it's bans, outright bans on single-use plastic, quotas to achieve a certain number of refillables, bottle bills. I love that phrase. What a great place to start, terrible place to stop. So since your involvement with the story of stuff, where do you see the most progress in terms of real solutions? I think what's kind of really promising and shows a lot of potential is definitely the refillables program. We are seeing this take hold at the corporate level. Dr. Bronner's, which is far from your average corporation, they're like wonderful. And they've been a longtime supporter of the story of stuff. That's interesting to me. The, the, the big company, you're just very interested in it and interested in making change yet you still see their product on the market, which I don't buy because of that reason. Like, I don't want that plastic bottle in my house. So that's a little bit of a conundrum. I guess, I don't know, can talk about that a little bit, like a company that is trying to make changes, but they haven't yet. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I was like, I'm from the Bay Area originally. So I was in San Francisco for many years and they have this like grocery cooperative which was years ahead of their time in terms of refillables right like you could go into it's called Rainbow Cooperative you could go there you know refill peanut butter honey Dr. Bronner's like all their soaps were in these massive you know containers and you could go there with your own container but weigh it beforehand fill it up weigh it after and then just get charged for weight of the products that you're buying. But this is one grocery store. Yes. <laughs> Which is, you know, kind of doing its own thing, marching to the beat of its own drum. But I think it kind of highlights the levels of that you have to go through. So for example, the unnamed large company has been sharing with us is that they're trying to get something like this going at Whole Foods, which is a huge chain, you know, like that's a huge step up from a little local grocery store. But there's the kind of things that it takes to sort of get that implemented at that level. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on on the grocery store itself, their willingness to sort of invest in whatever it takes. Now, I guess they have to invest in the big steel containers. They have to invest kind of the, the drop off and logistics around that. And then who is responsible for getting consumers to kind of do this? 
I have a personal question for you. So moving from Bay Area to Florida, that's got to be interesting as far as like accessibility to bulk and plastic. And Florida's probably one of those states that hasn't banned plastic bags. So I'm just curious what <laughs> what your experience has been, especially in doing this work. It's got to kind of be painful sometimes, huh? Yeah, I think you 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 got it. You kind of hit it on the nail there. So I'm in like a kind of interesting area, Northeast Florida and kind of near the beach where my immediate community, it's kind of really nice. It's a bit of a bubble. There are times when I'm kind of like when I have to go to Target or, you know, I'm expecting a baby soon. So we have definitely been making Target runs and Costco runs. I get a little depressed. Like I see people walking out of Costco with a cart loaded with plastic bottles of water. Oh, and we're just like, okay, (laughs) like, did you just buy the whole store? There's no ban on plastic bags. There is a recycling program that I think was in this city was suspended during COVID. I think it's back on track now. But yeah, there's a lot of work to be done here for sure. It's interesting that people care a lot about the ocean. People care a lot about sea turtles, regardless of their political affiliation. But in terms of making those bigger connections getting to like way deep into the issue you know the life cycle of plastic the fact that this is a direct output of of oil and gas there's a lot of work to be done here for sure oh you just said something very meaningful i think the connections people are not aware of in general and like you spoke to it early on the interview you know the microplastics in the in the beauty care products and the microplastics in our clothing. I mean, just so much of that is just buried, obliterated or obscured in in lack of awareness, like just lack of knowledge of that, you know, that when, you know, when you wash your, your shirt that's made of recycled water bottles, you are, you know, flushing little pieces of plastic to those very sea turtles that you love very much and are pro- maybe might be giving money to some conservation organization to save them. So it gets very complicated, to say the least. That's an understatement. But I wanted to ask you, do you see a healthy, visible growth in the understanding and the awareness and these connections? Probably not walking out of the Costco in the where you live in Florida, maybe, but in general, on a bigger scale. And also that also speaks to what you said, like, you know, consumer demand, it's what's really going to move the needle on these big companies. When people start saying, I'm not going to buy Gatorade anymore because it comes in plastic and they go, oh, okay, we'll start putting it in glass, you know. So are we moving in that direction where the consumers are really going to be able to say, no, do it differently? And they go, okay. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, we probably we would say that it's probably not on the consumer. I mean, if like say tomorrow and in such a like consumer driven economy as ours, yeah, the consumer does hold a lot of power if they're acting as like one whole unit. Everyone wakes up tomorrow and decides like, I'm not buying anything that comes in plastic anymore. Like, yeah, probably everything would change overnight. It's probably not a realistic scenario because I think the consumer is going to do what's what's available and what's convenient and what's cheap. So definitely one of the connections that we're trying to make in sort of the push for refillables and push for bottle bills is the economic connection. Like bottle bill is a de facto tax the consumer is paying unless you're getting that deposit back. Refillables can be cheaper and they should be cheaper than single use in order to really be effective. But in terms of like, we think it's laws that are going to force the change, outright bans, requirements, a federal level bottle bill. Like, I think right now you just have a handful of states with a bottle bill. So if we can pass something at the federal level where every state is required to make this attempt to reclaim their beverage containers, that's a huge step towards a circular economy least in this particular area. Yeah, it is. But, you know, as we observed earlier, policy change and changes in the laws are really 
kind of slow to occur. And it, it just seems sort of overwhelming. I have a thought about Costco really quickly, which is interesting that you brought it up. And this is not to say that Costco is by any stretch of it's not like it's a plastic free experience. But I will say if you are a member there and it's helpful for you to get groceries, I have found you can kind of be clever you know, they don't really get they don't really have plastic bags, at least at the one near ours. Like you kind of you you use like their boxes and a lot of the stuff does come in cardboard. A lot of it comes like horribly plastic and everything. But depending on what you buy, I think you can be a discerning shopper there and and shop there and get a lot of good value with not a lot of plastic. That's just been my personal experience. So shout out to Costco. I don't know. Yeah. If you do it right. No. If you do it right. <laughs> yeah. And and it's kind of a fun game. So if anyone's listening and like, I don't know, it's it can be so depressing. Like you were just saying, we were just like in a moment of like, uh, <laughs> I think that there are it's kind of also a fun opportunity to see like, OK, what can I do? What what how can I avoid? Oh, yeah. And I kind of live that way and drive myself and other people crazy sometimes. But it is sort of fun <laughs> because what else are you going to do? But I remember what I was going to say about hitting people in the pocketbook, so to speak, it's cheaper for them to get refillables and it's more expensive for them to throw things away rather than return and that kind of thing. But I remember when I think it was in Washington, D.C., I could be saying this wrong, but somewhere where I lived, <laughs> they started charging a nickel for a plastic grocery bag. And the outcry was just enormous. You would have thought you know, you were taking away their voting rights or something. Just yeah, people were furious. And Washington D.C. too, which is like pretty. pretty Was that in Washington? I can't. I don't want to say so because I can't remember exactly. But yeah. anyway, I have experienced living in a place where they started charging like a nickel for the plastic grocery bag, and people actually got furious about it. You know, they felt like they were being like overcharged. They felt felt like they were being gouged. Like this is an unnecessary expense. You know. It's unpatriotic or un, you know, undemocratic, too capitalistic to, to charge us for these plastic bags. When really, it's you know, it's the opposite of that. It's it's the objective is not for the grocery store to make money on a nickel bag. So I guess that's what I'm talking about. Maybe now, if the local grocery store started charging a nickel a bag, and where I live, they don't do it. People go, okay, I get it. And that's a small price to pay for keeping this out of the turtles stomach or whatever <laughs> so yeah i mean in california i think it's 10 cents if you don't bring your own buy oh wow yeah um, which even still is like shouldn't people shouldn't think people it's 10 cents so funny i don't know like there's it, it it's a it would be a really interesting kind of like research project or citizen science project i think to see if these little fees has changed behavior in any way and it would be interesting I'm curious to know, as since you are you work in this stuff and you talk about it every day and it's it's your job, how does it translate into your your personal life? Yeah, like I am thinking about it constantly. We recently, since we moved here, we you know, we've become homeowners and we have finally a ton of space. So we've set up like a kitchen garden, which is a lot of work, but you know we we're not giving up on it. It's our second year, and we have you know like at least things like herbs i've completely stopped buying like basil which is so expensive in grocery stores and comes in those plant shells so i I just hate buying herbs in grocery stores and pretty much stopped entirely i make my own yogurt so that's like a huge kind of we, we eat a lot of yogurt so <laughs> it's a bunch of plastic containers that i'm not buying anymore and you're expecting a baby, so you're going to have to think, you know, will you be using disposable diapers or cloth diapers? Or there's all those decisions. And, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's just interesting to. Yeah. And, and we always talk about, you know, people need to give themselves grace and and do what they can do, you know, and it's never a judgment thing like you should be doing this or should be doing that. But it's interesting to hear people's thought processes on it. Uh, yeah. I And it a lot of it like comes down to just, I guess, ease. You know, because it, like I grew up on cloth diapers. I, I was born in India. I spent the first five years of my life there. And it was just the norm. You know, it wasn't like anything weird. It was just the way it's always been done. And you can imagine like how many diapers that kept out of the landfill to have 
all these babies. In India. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Having, you know, normal cloth diapers. But then I think the kind of the setup, the way that houses are set up, the way that societies are set up, allow for that to happen. We have an extended family, so you have a lot of help. You have kind of a village around you. It's not that big of a deal. Like you have kind of a separate bathroom to sort of like deal with the like a poopy baby, you know. So it's things are kind of set up in a way that make the things that we kind of rely on just not very sensible. And we we don't really have that luxury here, you know. Like I really like definitely admire people who are who are using cloth diapers, like washing them and. I think we're going to try and do that. We're definitely going to try and party train as early as possible and all of that. There's a lot more effort involved. We just don't have the support system to help like a new mother. That's so interesting to think about the context of it. Again, how it's systemic, not just it's systemic in that it's this evil capitalist systemic system, but in a way, the solution is also systemic in that it's about communities and how we support each other. And how we infrastructure and well, just for a little perspective, how how quickly that's changed. I have three kids and Emma is the youngest. There's four years difference between her and her oldest brother. For our first child, we used cloth diapers. It was it was no big deal. Well, we had a service and it was it was fairly common. And, you know, most people I know did that. The disposable diapers were something you might get if if you were traveling or something like that. And then by the time Emma came along, just four years later, it was like, oh, nobody was going to fool with that. So it just kind of disappeared from the culture. I wonder if they're coming back at all. I wonder if if those services are coming back. And it, it was great. You literally they gave you the container, you put everything in there, they picked it up, and they dropped off clean diapers. It was magic. <laughs> You should look them up. Google them and see if they... <laughs> there might be some... I would think it would be an industry that might make a comeback. Yeah. Is So is this a new service or this is... This was... That was in 1986. <laughs> 1986. My son's 36 years old and, and he grew up on cloth diapers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that, that sounds like it could be like, you know, a new startup or something like... Yeah. It sounds a little daunting, dirty diapers, but... Years ago, it was very common. Oh, and you had several services to choose from. It wasn't just one guy. It was a whole thing. It was kind of like your, you know, your dry cleaner. So yeah, there, uh, maybe maybe it's time to bring back some of those solutions. Well, sort of related to that, what does slow living mean to you? We talk about slow living a lot on The Good Dirt and how slow living and sustainability are related. And so for you personally, do you get to, do you feel like you engage in slow living in any way? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, totally. Whenever I care, it means it covers everything from like the food choices that you make. I, I, I guess it's one of those things that is actually really deeply tied to consumer habits. I will say that I think that it's been easier to live some of those values since kind of getting our own place. Living in a big city like I, I have in California, it has some benefits. I think Generally, living in a city, you have a smaller footprint just because it's, you know, there's more accessibility to public transportation and you're kind of in an urban center. So it's like you're not going way out of your way to do something. It's kind of like everyone's doing the same. In general, it's it's hard to sort of live out those values when you have, you know, you have a small space, you have a huge, like, massive rent to pay and you don't have kind of the time. I think we've we've seen a lot of those things. You know, this is one of the things that maybe the pandemic helped. It's like it gave everyone a lot more time. And then for some people, those changes kind of became permanent. So my husband and I both work remote and the amount that we eat out or the amount that we, I guess, packaging that we bring into the house, all of that has reduced dramatically for sure. And I think it does come down to like just having the time. Oh, that's such an interesting observation about living the urban lifestyle. It makes that more difficult in several ways. Well, and maybe easier in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Another question we like to ask all of our guests is, what does the good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way you like. Well, I was really excited to kind of see your guys' outreach. 
especially since kind of becoming like a mature farmer in recent years, amateur quote quote. Or <laughs> yields are not nearly big enough to be considered a farmer, I guess. But you know, it's exciting. It's like you you plant a tree that, you know, if you take care of it for five years, it's gonna give you a ton of lemons and avocados, even if it doesn't in the first couple years. Yeah. So. It's that delayed gratification that we don't like or that we're not used to. Yeah, so I was definitely super excited. I didn't know a lot about you guys before, but had a chance to sort of look into it. And yeah, I think it's it's just so important to sort of connect with like where your food comes from and all of the effort that it takes to grow a single grain of rice. And I mentioned rice because... My parents are like super against waste. I think it's part of the culture for it to, to grow that single grain of rice. And I'll like, well, now I do. I do because I've not grown rice, but I do know the effort it grow it takes to like grow tomato, you know, or like grow zucchini. And also kind of encouraging women. So I I just I love what you guys do. But I guess to me I think about soil health, because you know, I'm I'm pretty into this stuff. So I I do I did think about soil health. <laughs> cool when it's worth <laughs> yeah yeah what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you're doing at the story of stuff and yeah what do you want most want the audience to take away from our conversation here together well I definitely want to say that I hope that nobody was discouraged because some, some of the things that <laughs> we talked about were you know kind of a little like I Yeah, I don't want anyone to be discouraged or to think that their individual actions don't matter. I just want to be very clear that they matter a lot. They're one step in the right direction. You know, not doing it is a step backwards. So it's we're not at all saying that individual actions don't matter. I think probably the most important kind of message of, of Story of Stuff is that we can change our relationship to stuff. Our relationship to stuff has kind of a, a newish phenomenon, at least in terms of like just the volume of our consumption and the rate of our disposal of it is fairly new. And we can absolutely live without a lot of new stuff, you know, or at least we can drastically change our relationship to stuff so that it's not like some of us have too much, some of us have too little. That's not the way things have to be. And to your point that it's fairly new, yes, humans lived a very, very, very long time before all of this. Yeah, we made it this far. Yeah, we made it this far. And we sort of have a short memory about before we had all this stuff. And something else I wanted to add to what you said about the strength of the individual actions and something we haven't talked about today much but when you do things you you set an example for other people and I think that's really powerful people go well why you know why do you care why don't you want the plastic top on your to-go coffee well because I try not to use plastic because and you know you talk to them a little bit about it and and before you know it you've engaged a person that might not have thought about these things before so yeah the power of example yeah, I love it. Well, thank you so much, Mithi. This has been really a fun and enlightening conversation. I'm so glad to learn more about what you guys do. And I have to admit, I haven't watched the feature length film yet, but now I'm really excited to. Is there, oh. where can I watch it? Is it online? I can, I can send you a link. Oh, great. Is it public? Is it open for everyone? Like anyone can watch it? I am not sure if it's publicly available. It's oh. not on our YouTube channel. We have kind of a, a private link. I can definitely get you that link. Oh, that would be so wonderful. And this is separate from the the series on plastics. That's a bunch of short films, right? Solving plastic, yes. Those are web series. They're very short. They're like two minutes. Okay, that's what I've seen. But I have no, yeah, this feature one. Oh, I'm so excited. I'll just add that I've been admiring you guys for years and following you. So it's just really exciting to get to have the story of stuff represented here on The Good Dirt. And you were such a delightful and knowledgeable and interesting representative. So thank you so much for your time. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. 
tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.